Just imagine this prophet who has received from the Lord the word to give the people of Israel. He's done that over and over. But now suddenly in worship, he has a vision of God in his glory and he is overwhelmed. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and speak. The word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson is taken from Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 9. Jesus has taught the Lord's Prayer, and then he continues to teach on prayer. And he says these words, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. The Gospel of Christ. Man, if that doesn't get a thanks be to God, nothing will. <laughs> He's promised the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This is the Gospel of Christ. <laughs> Amen. And our text uh, for this morning, as we continue our study of 1 Peter, uh, is chapter 1 beginning with verse 13 and we're going to read down through verse 21. Peter has given us this tremendous statement of the gospel and then has described as well 
some of the marks of those whose faith is being demonstrated. And now he does what Paul always does in his letters, and that's to say, based on the gospel, therefore, this is how you should live. This is the change that it should make in you. And before I read it, I just want to note what uh, often is taught as the indicative and the imperative. That's the grammatical structure of the gospel of grace, and it sets it apart from all other religion. Religion always starts with the imperative. Do this, do that, and then the indicative. This will be the case. Do these things, live like this, stop doing those things, and then God will love you and make you his if you just do it well enough. The gospel is utterly different. It always starts with the indicative. It always says, this is what God has done for you. Now, because he has saved you, this is how you should live. I often hear preachers who should know better say, it always begins with law, and then that shows us our failure and our inability to keep the law, and then God comes with grace. So law is just there to show us our brokenness so that we hit the wall and then we are open to the gospel. That's simply not true. Everything starts with grace. Creation itself was an act of incredible grace, creating us in his image and likeness for intimate friendship with him was an act of utter, unbelievable grace. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel, he didn't send the Ten Commandments down into Egypt and say, if you do these things, I will deliver you. God heard their cry, he delivered them, he brought them out, and then he said, and how do the Ten Commandments begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, this is the kind of response that you should make to that, a life of love for me and for one another. And so we come to Peter's first therefore in this letter, and we begin reading with verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you. 
Peter begins with a, a very interesting, uh, actually rather amusing, uh, Semitic Hebrew expression that we find often throughout the Bible. Now, because it's so odd to our ears, our translators don't translate it, they interpret it. But if you just were to look down at the footnote, it would have it literally there. He doesn't say, prepare your minds for action. He says, girding up the loins of your minds. Now, how in the world do you gird up the loins of your minds? But that was an ancient expression that described the physical act of someone getting ready for a contest or getting ready for battle or getting ready to do something that required physical activity. They wore these flowing tunics and they would catch them up together and put the belt tightly around so that it wasn't flopping around and, and keeping them from battle or from whatever they were doing, from running the race. Now, Peter is telling us that there's a correlate in our minds, that in a sense, when we're being lazy-minded, our minds are just kind of flapping around like a tunic, being blown by every thought that comes through, being, you know, whatever is going on around us, whatever the noise is that's being made, whatever music, whatever's playing on, we're captive to that, and we're blown about. And he's saying, okay, now this is serious, and I want you to gird up your mind. I want you to stop it from flapping around. Tighten up now. Focus. Center. Listen. That's what he means with this expression. And it's very interesting that all throughout this letter, I think because he was writing to people who were facing imminent persecution, probably under Nero, uh, and some already experiencing it, He's getting them constantly to look ahead. Remember that he started by saying that, you know, by praising God because he has given us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven, ready to be revealed in the last day. So he's pointing us ahead all the way through, and he starts that again now. He says, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first thing that he's telling us is that if we want to live confidently now, we need to set our minds on the future with confidence, face the future with confidence. Now, what does he mean and why is he doing that? There's a sense in which all of us, especially in this time in our culture, need to begin cherishing history again. History's being rewritten, it's being set aside, it's being just seen as, as nothing but problem and wickedness. We need to recapture all the lessons of history or as was it Lord Acton, I forget who it was, but one of the wise old sages said, uh, the person who doesn't know history is doomed to repeat it. We learn lessons from history. But Peter wants us, before we look back, to look ahead, and I think this is the reason. We have a tendency, when we look back, to become self-obsessed, to look back on our own brokenness, all of the things that have made our lives at present not what we had hoped they would be by now. And it may be 
to look back with anger at things done to us by people that mistreated us. Perhaps we grew up without the love and affection that a child really needs to thrive. Perhaps we were in abusive settings. Perhaps our life was sweet then, but somewhere along the way we were utterly betrayed and lost a relationship or a dream or something that we'd hoped for. And it's easy for us to look back on all of the things that have disappointed us, to read them into our present as though somehow we are bound by those things, and then to project out into the future this sort of idea that, you know, because of things that happened to me in the past, I, I probably will never be able to, to have the kind of life that I'd hoped one day to have. And Peter's saying, reorient yourself, start with this. Start with this tremendous promise of what God has for you. That's the telos. That's the goal. That's the end. That's what you are headed toward. Something more glorious than you could now imagine. The king of life will one day face you and wipe away your tears and, and say with ringing joy and power, behold, I make all things new. And death will be defeated, sin and brokenness destroyed. The broken places will be made whole, the crooked places made straight. He's trying to get us to see that and to live in the light of that and to live toward that promise of God, toward that great hope. And note that he also says, set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be revealed on all that the Lord has for you in this inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In other words, I don't know about you, but here's my problem. I know about that, and sometimes I think about it. But I also, you know, I hope it's good weather, and I'm disappointed if it isn't. And I'm, I'm hoping, you know, that uh, the stock market starts behaving again so that uh, I'm not quite so challenged at my age. And I'm hoping, I've got all these things I'm hoping for. And of course, we have human hopes, but he wants those to be of such a lower level compared to the promises of God and the assured future that God is holding for us. That those things do not cast us down. That those do not become our obsessions. I told you last week, and, and one of our guys, I won't, okay, George King, George remembered. He was listening last week. So I walked in and said, how are you this morning, George? He said, redeemed. How are you? Yeah. Uh, those of you who don't understand what we're laughing about, you just, you're out of it. You can't know. But I told you that story of my friend who was just, it was always, you know, redeemed, redeemed until the stock market crashed. And then he was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? How am I going to make it? That's what he's talking about. Whatever happens, yes, things disappoint. Yes, there are reversals that we have to face. Yes, there are things that break our hearts. He's not saying slap on a happy face. But he's saying that our hope ultimately is to be unwaveringly set so that whatever we are going through, we do not despair. That's his point. So may I just be a preacher for a minute and ask, what is it today perhaps that woke you up at three in the morning and just had you lying there in fear and anxiety? 
What is it that in reflective moments suddenly rises up in your mind and robs you of your joy? The Lord is inviting you to begin to live differently in those moments in the night, in those moments of fear and anguish and sadness to say, yes, this is true. This breaks my heart. Nevertheless, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that he holds my future. I know that I have an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept. Nothing here can ever shake that. That's, that's the trajectory of my life. I'm pointed toward that day, and nothing can stop that. That's his invitation. That's his first thing. Live toward the future with this confidence in what God has promised. Secondly, he steps back to the current time. In the light of that future, he says, realize what God offers you today. God created us in his image after his likeness so that we might be like him in fellowship with him, in fact, in intimate communion with him. And when we broke all that and this good creation to pieces with our rebellion, God in his grace sent his son to join himself to us. He didn't stand back from the story. He entered into it as only he could. We can write stories. We can even fall in love with the characters of our imagination, but we can never embrace them. <laughs> we can never really enter the story. But he did. He joined himself to us. He took the stuff, the flesh of creation. Why do we celebrate him in a little meal with little bits of bread and, and uh, we pretend that it's wine, it's grape juice in evangelical churches, but if Jesus were here, he would turn it to wine. Um, and we want him to, at least in the deepest and truest sense, because the reason that we use water in baptism and we use bread and wine in communion is because God made this cosmos not just to reveal his glory, but to mediate his presence to us. This was going to be the field in which he walked with us. He walked with our first parents in intimate communion. And this is where he wants to meet us. And so for a moment, this fallen, broken stuff of creation here gets to do what God made it to do, which is to bring him to us as we receive this in faith. So he says, look, in all these ways, through his word, through prayer, through fellowship, through worship, through the sacraments, through service, we are to be growing up again by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, by our union with Christ, back into his image. And so he says, as he who called you is holy, be holy, because he said, reflects back to the Old Testament, you should be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. Now, that presents at least two problems to us. And the first is, holiness is the very word that describes God's difference from us. 
Uh, R.C. Sproul years ago fell absolutely in love in a beautiful way. It was really transforming. If you read his works before and after, the holiness of God gripped him in a new way and he wrote a book and did a lot of conferences for a while on God's holiness and it was tremendously helpful. He did say one thing that uh, I had the opportunity to share that I, I disagreed with. Um, he, he saw holiness as God's chief attribute because he said, you know, God is love, but it never says that he's love, love, love. He's, he's just, but it never says that he's justice, 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 but it says that he's holy, holy, holy. Well, I believe that that's because it's not an attribute of God, it is rather the perfection of all of his other attributes. You and I love, but God's love is a holy and perfect love. You and I do, hopefully, deeds of mercy and deeds of justice, but ours is not holy and perfect. And so it describes our difference but what he's saying is that now by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, he wants us to be increasingly moving into that where we are becoming more and more. A child grows, you know, it, it's funny in my family. Uh, well, it's true in every family. When you're little, you don't look much like your parents usually. But it's rather scary to me now at 75, I'll get up sometime in the morning, look in the mirror and go, Dad. <laughs> Whoa, you know, what happened? Um, as we grow, but and hopefully if we have good parents, we begin to show more and more the character that we're seeing. And that's what he's calling us to do and to be. The other problem that we have is that holy has not become a positive word. If you say, oh, he's so holy, that's usually not a compliment. It usually means he's rather insufferable and tries to show everybody how virtuous he is. I remember a friend of mine who was the, the uh, uh, preacher to the Memorial Church at Harvard, old Peter Gunn's Peter, describing one of his colleagues as the gentleman suffers from an excess of virtue. And I knew exactly what he meant. Uh, we think of it in those terms, but that's not what it means. You look at Jesus and you see holiness. You look even at the Ten Commandments rightly understood and you see that it's not a bunch of rules, it's a picture of how to love God and how to love other people. We all by nature tend to be like Steve Martin who in his I believe section years ago said, I believe in mom and America and apple pie and seven of the Ten Commandments. And you know, we all sort of have our favorites. But the fact is the commandments are a picture of what it looks like to love God and to love each other. And even if there are some there that I don't wanna keep, I guarantee you, I want every one of my neighbors and every family member of mine to keep them all. Because it's a picture we all know of a completely healthy life lived with thoughtfulness and compassion toward others. So at the heart of holiness is simply an ever-increasing self-sacrificial love. Here's the mark of a Christian and why the kinds of fights we get in shouldn't happen. A Christian realizes that it's not about me and what I want and what I think. It's how 
can I lay down my life for this person? And you say, I don't know. No, we can't. Apart from the grace of God and apart from the next point, which is we now look back with gratitude on what Christ has done in order to make us his and make all of this possible and give us a future. How does he say that beginning with verse 18? Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so he'll end this by closing the loop. He starts by telling us that our hope is in the Lord and what he's going to do when he's revealed. And he ends this section so that your faith and hope are in God. A.W. Tozer, in his classic uh, work, The Pursuit of God, captures this whole thing so beautifully. And I'll let him have the final word. He says, the pursuit of God will embrace the labor of bringing our total personality into conformity to his. And this not judicially, but actually. I do not here refer to the act of justification by faith in Christ. I speak of a voluntary exalting of God to his proper station over us and a willing surrender of our whole being to the place of worshipful submission which the creator creature circumstance makes proper. The moment we make up our minds that we're going on with this determination to exalt God over all, we step out of the world's parade. Isn't that great? Now, do we ever do it perfectly? No. Do we ever get all the way there? I've had days and nights when I thought, I've, here I am. I have, I have finally achieved that level of spirituality that I had, which of course in that very moment invalidated that it was the act of an arrogant, blind little sinner. But very quickly, you know, then you wake up and it's morning and you have to become a follower of Jesus all over again. Do you want to step out of this world's parade? That's the invitation that we have here. And as we prepare this meal, would you take a moment, respond in your heart to whatever God may be saying to you this morning through his word. This meal is not a Presbyterian or an EP meal. This is set by Jesus Christ. And so if you're trusting in the Lord for your salvation and have been baptized into the body of Christ, then we invite you to come, not because you're strong, but because you're weak, not because you're good, but because you're in need of God's goodness and grace. Come because you love the Lord a little and you long to love him more. Come because... He loves you and gave himself for you. Our Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. 
gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. After they'd eaten, he took the cup. And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me.